Good morning, and the Lord bless you. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we sing those words, uh, a feeling of guilt comes over us. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you, is loving you, is serving you. And Lord, there comes wistful desires in our hearts that that which we sing with our lips we might experience in our life. We're conscious, Lord Jesus, that you deserve all this. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we're conscious that we fail so miserably. And yet, we love you and, and we know you and our heart's desire is to be available to you. And so again, as we turn to your precious word this morning, may your Holy Spirit stir our slumbering consciences. And may we not only expose our minds to truth, but our, our heart to truth as well. And may there be a willing desire to pay the price. Lord, <clears throat> so often we look for a bargain basement in God's love and care for us. We want all we can get at the least possible price. And we thank you, God, that you didn't operate that way. That when you redeemed us, you gave all that you had. May there be a willingness at this time of thanksgiving to respond to you as you truly and really deserve. And may it begin even this morning as we turn to your word now. So be pleased to break your word small and feed our hearts. And this prayer we ask, expecting nothing but blessing, for we ask it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> Those of you who've joined us, we've been taking a series which I'm calling, What is Missing in Your Christian Life? Because as I travel the world and speak to pastors and missionaries and to Christians, I find so many are unsatisfied with the quality of life they're living. They know there's so much more, and they long for it. And perhaps they can get it by reading books or going to conferences or learning new gimmicks or any way. And so this is the way in which we're looking into the message, this series. What's missing in your Christian life? We began by talking about the missing experience. And that's where it all begins, because the missing experience is simply this. You are complete in Christ. God has nothing more for you. But you only enter into that completeness. Not sinless perfection, but a quality of wholeness before God. You only enter into that when you take all that God has provided. And we've seen that God provides the death of Christ. Well, every Christian knows that. You come to the cross and you're saved by his precious blood. But there's so much more than that, as we saw in Romans 5.10. We're reconciled by his death, but that's only so that we can be saved by his life. And if all you know is that you're reconciled by the death of Christ, no wonder something's missing. Because you've missed out the so much more. The realization of the life of Christ indwelling you, saving you in all situations. And that's how we began. Then we spoke about the missing word. This tremendous thought of why, if I have all this available, why don't I still make it? And the missing word in our lives was the key word of the preaching of our Lord Jesus. 
And that was the one word repentance. And we saw, and some of you commented on this too, it seems to be missing in our churches. As if the word repentance is an old-fashioned word, it, it's out of style now. And uh, it's negative. That's the devil's philosophy. The word repentance is one of the most positive words in the Bible. It sets me free from an old lifestyle so that I can enter into all the fullness of Christ. Then we spoke about the missing name. The, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, the two names of our Lord, they, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And we thought how many hymns we sing about Jesus. But it, the angel also said in the prophecy, thou, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus is God for me on the cross. Emmanuel is God with me in the crisis. Two names of Christ, God for me, God with me. It's just all the way through. It's this completeness in Christ. This twofold relationship with Christ. In his death, that's how I'm born again. Through his indwelling Holy Spirit, his life, that's how I live. Then we thought last evening of the missing privilege. And we thought of suffering as the missing privilege. Again, uh, an impossible idea in the eyes of human thinking. But then as Isaiah 55, 8, 9 tells us, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways aren't my ways. And just as repentance is a positive thing under the hand of God, so suffering under the hand of God can be the most positive thing in your life. I would almost prophesy the greatest things you'll ever learn will you learn through suffering. You can't learn them through reading a book or passing examinations. It's only as we suffer so we learn. And when you run away from suffering, you may be running away from the greatest lesson God wants to teach you. I remember one of my sons saying recently when he had some problems, he said, I hope I learn the first time round. You see, I hope you learn the first time round. Otherwise, if you don't learn, God may have to give you a summer school and a winter school. And the whole works all over again until you do learn. And the tragedy is, some people never learn. And because they never learn, they never go on to be all that God would have them to be. Now, I want to speak this morning about something I've noticed so much in many lives of people I counsel with. The missing rest in the life of the believer. The missing rest. If you check in Hebrews, you find these amazing words, There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. There is a rest today for the people of God. And some of you listening now, and many of you listening by tape, and especially I'm thinking of people listening by tape wherever you may be. This could easily be the missing ingredient in your Christian life. Rest. Those to whom I'm speaking here, do you know rest in your soul? Or is the turmoil and unrest and fear and uncertainty? And many, many of God's people are restless, unresting. No ability, no capacity for resting. Yet the Bible is full of the same thought about casting your burden on the Lord and resting in God. And when God makes promises, He doesn't fool you. He doesn't tantalize you. 
Whenever God makes a promise, He gives the capacity for enjoying that promise. And so we're talking of the missing rest. This is one of the ways in which God brings divine healing. And I believe in divine healing, very much so. You see, where you have in the life of a Christian now, somebody who's in turmoil, and I'm thinking especially now of you students here. Uh, student years are often days of turmoil. I think of all the young folk I've spoken to through the years, and in many cases I say, where do you go from here? And they say, I, I have no idea. I don't know where I go. I'm wondering. And if you probe a little bit deeper, I'm anxious. I'm, uh, I'm worried. I'm distressed. What happens to me? And so even apart from any area of sin or weakness, there's this sense of unrest and uncertainty. And you see, one of the things that restlessness brings is... Uh, talking medically, is high blood pressure. And that's the cause of so many of our, quote, modern illnesses today, is high blood pressure, tension, fear, and the pressure all around. We live in a pressure world. We're almost in a pressure cooker, the world we live in today. And some of you may be under great pressure. And if you can't handle it, you're automatically going to have high blood pressure, which can lead to, what, so many complaints, can be fatal in the end. And so looking into this question of rest isn't just a theological, spiritual thing. It's a lifelong thing. It's a physical thing too. And you'll find as we look into the word, it's good theology, but it's good practicality too. I like all the teaching I bring to be extremely practical, where you can turn belief into behavior and make it work. So look with me in Exodus first. And remember, we're thinking about the missing rest in the life of the believer. We're going to find out what rest is. And then how you can have it. And how you can enjoy it. When you get to Exodus 33, uh, the people of Israel are out of Egypt. Moses has accomplished... Uh, Operation Exodus. And now he's facing a new future. And in verse 12, you have this conversation. Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. So here you have Moses, he's not complaining, you see his back is towards Egypt, he's looking into a totally unknown future of uh, the wilderness and the promised land, and he's asking God for two things. One, who's going with me? And secondly, which way do I go? See, who's going with me? Now, in Operation Exodus, Aaron was with him. Aaron was the city man who knew the ways of Egypt. And Aaron and Moses together worked under God's good hand to bring the people out. 
But Aaron knows nothing about the wilderness. Nowhere at all. In fact, it's rather interesting. In fact, if you ever go there today, there's very little known about the wilderness area. Not many roads are there. You have peacekeeping forces, and it's still uh, a no-man's land. In Moses' day, it was completely unknown. And when you've got these scads of people that he had, you need to make sure which way you're going. For if you head down in this direction with nearly a million people or more and suddenly find you're wrong and you say, halt about and all the way back again, you're going to have trouble. And so he's asking very sensible questions. One, who's going with me? <coughs> and then, which way do I go? And you can put yourself in the same situation, especially students or anybody. Now, who's going with me? And uh, most of all, which way do I go? Some of you folks in Bible school here, you finish soon. It's wonderful when you start because there's all that long time ahead at Bible school. But then it gets shorter and shorter and shorter and you come to the edge of the precipice and you've got to jump off. And uh, which way do I go? Who's going with me? Or there may be some of you here listening later on by tape or here. And uh, you have decisions to make regarding your future. We always have. God's answer is the answer for all time. Look at it. Verse 14. <clears throat> My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Moses said, who's going with me? God said, I am. Moses said, which way shall I go? God said, I'm going with you. That's all you need to know. Simple as that. I'm going with you. That's all you need to know. I will give you rest. When you come to the parting of the ways, I will give you rest. When you come to pressures, I will give you rest. When you face with the enemy, I will give you rest. I'll be there. I'll, be, I'll always be there. And I will give you rest. And if you consider what Moses' life was from then on, for 40 years, he did 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the weeks of the year. No time off. With these people who were a headache and a heartache and a miserable bunch of complainers, many of them, they weren't willing, enthusiastic people. They had to be dragged and driven and threatened time and time again. And for 40 years handling a mob like that. And yet at the end, if you look in the end of De Deuteronomy, you find that uh, at 120 years old, now that's a challenge for you, 120 years old, he could climb mountains. He had 20-20 vision. You see, the rest that God gives, you can go on and on regardless of age, regardless of situation. Moses got older chronologically, but he got stronger physically because he, he learned to rest. And that's the secret. And God has no favorites. Whatever God did for one child of his, he does for another. Not that you live to 120. God forbid that would be terrifying. Who wants to live to 120? But to be able to go on regardless of your age. 
and to know a relationship with God which brings renewed facilities. And uh, your eyes don't grow dim. That means you've got vision. One of the things missing in so many Christian lives today is vision. We're, we're myopic. We can't see. And Moses' vision never dimmed. And he could climb mountains. And very often as we get older, we like to go downhill. It's so much easier. As long as you've got brakes. But going uphill is a challenge. Going uphill with vision. What a glorious concept of a Christian life. To keep on going uphill and to have vision. Well, I, I couldn't ask more of God than that. Uphill, work to do, vision, thank you Lord. And then at the end, God just switched him off like that. He didn't die, God just switched him off. What a glorious way to go. Well, you're having an idea there of what rest is. To many of us, and in the eyes of the world, rest is, oh boy, this is great. Let me get my feet up, cup of coffee, switch the TV on, get a newspaper, just lie horizontal. That, in a sense, is rest. But spiritually, it's laziness. Because rest, you'll find, is a total involvement. See, Moses was totally involved with God. Now, when I read some time ago these words of God to Moses, I will give you rest. I thought again, I will give you rest. No, I've heard those words before. I will give you rest. And so turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. And chapter 11, and verses you know so well. Matthew 11, and verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Old Testament promise re-echoed. In the Old Testament, God the Father, I will give you rest. To Moses. In the New Testament, God the Son, I will give you rest. To whom? To anyone who comes. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Now, straight away, you have a problem. Uh, this verse I've read to you is one of the great verses of the Bible. And I remember some of the homes I go to where people have in bedrooms. Uh, pictures from a past generation and uh, old farming stock and hard-working people used to have this text on their wall. You remember, come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's an old-time text, uh, and you know it, and I will give you rest. But the problem is this. You've come to Jesus. You've been reconciled by his death. Your sins are forgiven. You've got a home in heaven. And you know what? You haven't got rest. What's gone wrong? You've come, but you haven't got rest. Now, that is the problem with many of God's people today. They've come, and they've acknowledged their sin. They've repented. They've accepted Christ as their Savior. Their sins are forgiven. They've got a home in heaven. 
And as they go on day by day, they've got a, a future which is assured, and they've got a present which is turmoil. I will give you rest. Well, the answer to the question, what's gone wrong, is very simple. Our Lord didn't finish at the end of what is said here as verse 28. Just read on with me to the end of the chapter. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, <clears throat> our Lord didn't only say, come. This is one of those delightful passages where it's so simple. I've been impressing on you every message I brought. The utter simplicity of the teaching of the word of God. It isn't complicated. Jesus said four words. Come, take, learn, find. The absolute simplicity of this message, four directive words, come, take, learn, find. You see, he didn't say come, he said come and I will give you rest. But just because the Lord is giving rest doesn't mean to say you enjoy that rest. When I heard the gospel as a, an adult for the first time, every time I heard the gospel, God was offering to me forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven. It was being offered to me. But just because God was giving it to me didn't mean to say that I enjoyed it. I had to respond to the givingness of God. And it is so here. I will give you rest. You've got to respond to the givingness. You see, it takes two to make the givingness complete, there's the one who gives and there's the one who receives. And at the cross, the Lord is giving. And at the cross, there you receive forgiveness and a home in heaven. But at the cross, it's through the reconciling death of Christ. In the crisis, it's through the saving life of Christ. And whilst we're eager to come at the cross, somehow we don't come in the crisis. And so we miss out on this rest. You see, the three word, the four words are come, take, learn, and find. Now, I never really uh, understood this until I traveled to the Far East and then on into India. And I realize what the Lord is painting here, using, is an illustration so common to the people of his day, but quite foreign to us in our Western culture. Many of the illustrations our Lord used were to do with farming and the practices they had in those days about sowing seed and birds of the air and flowers of the field and all those things people knew. And what he's using here is an illustration which I saw in the Philippines some years ago. And it was amusing. And the people who were listening to our Lord, they would click in right away to what he was saying. But you and I hear these words, and uh, they're lovely words, but we miss the whole point. See, he's referring to the practice of the peasant farmers of those days. 
where you had oxen. When you speak of a yoke, we speak of a yoke of oxen. Now, you farming folk here, I know that ox is a male, but when we talk of oxen, it means both male and female. At least it does in my message now. And we talk about a yoke of oxen. And when uh, I learned this, when you talk of a yoke of oxen, there is always a leader. One of those two is the leader. And it's called his yoke. And the other one is a backup. That the one is the leader. And a yoke, of course, you know, is just a piece of wood that joins <clears throat> two animals together in service. Now, please notice whose yoke it is in verse 29. Not take your yoke. Take my yoke. Upon you. You read later on in Matthew. It's take up your cross. You have your own cross. But you don't have your own yoke. The Lord says take my yoke. And you'll see as the illustration unfolds. The Lord is showing himself. To be the leader. Under the yoke. This is the whole point. Of this glorious. Wonderful illustration. It's Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. He's still on the job. And I was so pleased when we sang that last chorus. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. That's being complete. Then loving you. And what's the third one, do you remember? Serving you. And uh, we, uh, this is the one we soft pedal. We, uh, many of us do. We talk about knowing and we, we, we go on loving and loving until we wear the word to bits and shreds and pieces. When it comes to serving, we, uh, we soft pedal that. Because, you know, if I get involved with serving, well, it's going to cost me something. We don't mind having all the love and all the comfort. And we sing about all the comfort he brings and all the protection. That's great. Cost me nothing. <clears throat> Cost me nothing to be loved by Jesus. But if you start talking about me serving, well, that's going to interfere with my program. I mean, after all, I, I've got the whole program mapped out, and uh, if I've got to uh, start thinking of serving him, well, something's got to go. And I don't want it to go. And that's really one of the basic reasons why we don't have rest. You see, if your faith costs you nothing, it's worth nothing. And so many people I meet with, and so many young people, I'm not hitting you, but I'm just loving you. If you want a faith on the cheap, there's no such thing. God paid all that he had. God emptied heaven for you. I'm not talking about emptying your pockets. That's the least important. It's yourself. And the Lord is doing this marvelous illustration. Come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. See, what I saw was this, and this really is the beauty, and it's almost humorous at times. These peasant farmers, wherever you met them, I, met, I saw some in Hong Kong, and I saw some in the Philippines, and I saw some in India. 
These little fellows who have their wooden plows or their makeshift plows and they're pulled by oxen, a yoke of oxen to the pull. And they scratch the earth and eke out a very humble living, a very scarce living. I know the big thing now is tractors and more and more tractors are moving into these countries. But even so, if you think it through, uh, oxen, a yoke of oxen, ha has many advantages over tractors. Ever realize that? I mean, when the oxen is done with, you can eat it. You try chewing the back end of a tractor and you'll break your teeth. And you can wear it. You can eat it and you can wear it. And most of all, you can breed with them. You put two tractors together in a shed. You can leave them there. Tractors don't have wheelbarrows that grow bigger into handcarts than into tractors. You can't breed with tractors, but you can with oxen when you get the male and the female. And that's the whole secret of the culture of those countries. He wants a calf because when he's got his calf, his future is assured. And the little peasant farmer, whether, he, whether it's a male or a female, when it comes to his future, he wants the female to produce a calf. And when he's got his calf, then he's uh, on the spot because he has to look after that calf. See, if you starve it and um, treat it roughly, well, then you'll get a skinny, worn-out beast to work with in the days to come. So you have to balance up how much you give it in, in, in regards to future service. It's interesting to see as I saw uh, people plowing with oxen, and to see a young one running alongside in the field, or better still, coming down the corner in the Philippines uh, with a missionary in a vehicle, and find a bullock cart coming round the corner with uh, one of these beasts in the shafts, and a little one running alongside. Now, we in England, we look after our calves. We put them in pens, or we guard them. But they, they run free. And I wondered why until the mother animal stopped and the young one went and had it. I found the, the mother animal was a mobile milk bar and the young one just snuggled in and nursed and there it was. And so plowing, when she stops to turn in, you come for a free drink and back you come again. But then it's weaned and you have this young one who's now growing stronger. Now again, uh, how much feed are you going to give him? If you go easy on the food... He won't get strength and capacity for hard work. So you have to feed him as much as you can, but don't overdo it. And for a glorious period of his life, the young one lives on welfare. Buckets are rattle at the right time. Up he comes, in goes his nose, gobble, gobble, gobble. Back he goes, no work. Just free and easy. Uh, how much feed are you going to give him? If you go easy on the food... He won't get strength and capacity for hard work. So you have to feed him as much as you can, but don't overdo it. And for a glorious period of his life, the young one lives on welfare. Buckets are rattle at the right time. Up he comes, in goes his nose, gobble, gobble, gobble. Back he goes, no work. Just free and easy, just doing what he likes. And that goes on and on day after day, and all the time the peasant farmer is watching him, 
watching him, watching him. And the day comes when he says, my boy, I, I think you're ready. I think you're ready to be broken in. And so he makes preparations. And this is what I saw. You prepare to break in the young one. You have the leader under the yoke. And don't forget, when the Lord talks about yokes, he was the carpenter at Nazareth. He made yokes. And he made the carts and he made the plows. So he was an authority even in his humanity in this. I've seen some of the yokes, the early ones, the first time, the, before they're well used, they're rough. And boy, if you run your finger along, you get splinters and slivers in your finger. But you know what? The longer you wear it, the smoother it gets. Same for daily living. The longer you wear it, the smoother it gets. And so they had this yoke, and there was the leader underneath the yoke, and here was a space for Junior. And the farmer got a couple of strong, husky helpers from nearby, and they came armed with two-befores, or planks, or something firm and solid. And then, at the right moment, the farmer rattled his bucket. And Junior heard the rattle, and he thought, That's strange. It isn't feeding time, but any time's feeding time when you're young. So up he comes to the bucket, in goes his nose. Nothing. And you've seen an animal that is, especially cows or such creatures, when they're nervous, you know, he starts to go back like this. And as he goes back, he gets nearer to these two fellows with two befores. And as he approaches too near, they just go, wham, wham. And he's shocked out of his existence. Never has anybody dared to wham him with a two before. And he goes forward. And here you have the yoke. And here you have the leader. And there you have the empty space. And there you have Junior. And so they encourage him gently with two befores. Wham, wham, wham. Round this way here. And they bring him round here. And now he, he's facing the last few seconds of his free life. All the days of carefree, kicking your heels and doing nothing are about to end. And they drive him forward and drive him forward. And he gets the yoke under his chin, looking around like this. But you don't wear yokes under your chin. You've got to bow your stubborn neck. And so they go wham, wham, wham. And down goes his neck. And on goes the yoke. And slam. He's had it. His days of carefree life are gone. And he's under the yoke. Now, these people would see the whole illustration. And you can apply it to yourself. You've been born again. You've been growing. And you've been living on God's welfare. Now, you weren't saved to run around loose, fancy, free for the whole of your life. You were saved to serve. That's why God saved you. He didn't save you for an idle kind of a runabout life. Everybody whom God used was serving. And see yourself in the picture. And there comes a day when you see uh, the Lord says, come. He doesn't rattle a bucket, but he says, come. And so you come. Then when you come, he says, now you, you take my yoke. Don't miss it. Take my yoke. 
The Lord has already taken it. He's under it. He doesn't ask you to do what he hasn't done himself. That's the marvelous thing about our Lord. He never asks us to do what he hasn't done himself. And so he wants you to come and bow your stubborn neck and get under the yoke and say goodbye to all your fancy free do-it-yourself life. And sometimes God has to use persuaders to encourage us this way. I remember once when I was in India, I was at the Ramabai Mukti Mission, a wonderful mission run by ladies for girls in India. Uh, long ago it was started by Ramabai, was a lady's name, a wonderful lady. Mukti means salvation. And uh, after I'd been there for a week, they gave me a VIP send-off. They had a bullock cart, a small one, uh, like a Cadillac, with a covered top, and a shaft down the middle, and two animals here, and a driver on the seat, and they put your bags below, and you, you sat on the seat, very conspicuous, alongside the driver, and I got myself there. And these dear people prayed and sang a little hymn, as they always do when they send you off. I was going to the station to uh, drive to Bombay to fly on to Ethiopia. And just as we were about to set off, uh, the lady in charge came and she said, Now, John, just watch this one. He's a new one. And I looked over the top. I could see the old-timer's nose was right down the road. And Junior had his nose this way. She said, Now, watch him. He's a new one. So uh, I said, Okay. So we began... And the, the Indian driver said, gee up, or whatever they say in their language. And we started off, and the old one, of course, knew the way to the railway station. He went down here and down there. But Junior was new, and here he was, and he geed up, and he started going, of course, in this direction. But it was so easy, the driver had a persuader, too. He just went, wham, wham, and he leveled up, and on we went down the road. But I could see trouble ahead. We were coming to a T-junction. And the railway station was down there. <laughs> you can guess what happens. As we got to the T-junction, oh, the old-timer, he knew what to do. He just did a left turn. And Junior said, you take the high road, I'll take the low road. He, did, he, he turned this way. And I nearly became a split infinitive. But it was <laughs> so easy. The driver had his persuader, wham, 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 wham. And Junior came round and on we went again. And I thought to myself, you stupid animal. Why don't you stop making decisions? Why don't you just learn from the old timer? Let him make the decisions. And I suddenly realized I was thinking about, I was talking about myself. And I'm talking about you now. Come. Take my yoke. Why do you put the young one under the yoke? So that he can learn of the old one. Learn of me. And then you find rest. And again you find it's just the same as it was with Moses. Rest isn't, in God's economy, isn't signing off. Retiring, nobody, God has no retiring situation at all. You can be retired, have a new set of tires. God gave me three new spark plugs a little while ago. 
when I had open heart surgery for a triple bypass, I got three new spark plugs and I've got new tires. But you just keep on going. And that's the wonder of it. Because rest isn't idleness. Rest is being involved in the program of God. Day by day. The Lord said to Moses, I'll go with you. That's all you need to know. I'll give you rest. When it comes to decisions, I'll give you rest. The Lord says, you come unto me. Now do the biggest thing you've ever done in your life. Take my yoke upon you. Choose to say goodbye to your old lifestyle. Stop making decisions. Scrap the whole plan that you have. Don't, you see, we began by thinking uh, of service. How can I fit the Lord in? I've got such a busy day. How can I fit the Lord in? You've got the wrong idea. You don't fit the Lord in. You throw the whole lot out. And let the Lord move in. And He has His own plan. And you know, the Lord's plan is better than your plan. My plan. The Lord's plan may be to leave you where you are. And use you where you are. The Lord's plan may be to take you out of where you are and put you somewhere else. That's His decision. But please notice... The Lord can do very little with you until you come under the yoke. So often we want to run around the field living on welfare and then ask the Lord to, uh, what do I do now? Or give me a five minutes job. The Lord doesn't, ha doesn't want casual laborers or short-term missionaries. The Lord wants full-timers, a life sentence. And that's how the Lord was. And that's how these beasts were. The Lord might give them, the, the peasant might give them a break now and again, like he'll give you a break. But the great thing is, you see, you come. And then the, the crux, the key word is, take my yoke upon you. And it may be I'm speaking to somebody now or later on by tape. And God is using persuaders on you to move you to bend your stubborn neck. And say, not my will, but thine be done. That's what the Lord said. The Lord was the most perfect, precious servant there ever was. I do always those things that please the Father. And taking the yoke. Is such a chancy thing. It's such a final thing. It's like jumping off the edge of a cliff. You can't switch the camera and jump back again like they do in some of the funny films. Oh, I know what happens. We, we can yield our lives to Christ and then, as it were, backslide and, and move into our own situation. But if you have ever, if you have ever been really involved with Christ, and ever known his wonderful presence. And the reality of his nearness. And gone along with him. When you get away on your own. You soon realize what's wrong. And every fiber in your being wants you to come back again. Because first you know him. Then you love him. 
and you serve Him. You see, the only way you can know Him is to be alongside of Him, under the yoke. See, come, take, and then learn of me. The only way you can know a person is to live with that person. Some of you folks who are, like me, married and older in years, look back to the wonderful days of your freedom before you took the yoke of marriage, if you like. And uh, if, you're a, if you're a lady, uh, you had your eye on a young man and you sized him up and you thought, well, I think I can manage him, you know. And uh, you fellows, you saw her, and boy, was she sweet and lovely, and you thought, now, I can do something with her. Uh, you know, we can get along fine. And so you each thought you knew each other, and you got married. And you spent the rest of your married life learning about each other, knowing each other. If you knew what you know now, would you have said yes? That isn't fair, is it? No. <laughs> but the only way you can know a person is to live with them. And it's no good you singing, I want to know you more, and running away on your own. You'll never get to know Jesus if you're doing a solo. The only way you can know him is to come and take the yoke. And then you learn of him. And then wonder of wonders, then you find rest. And to me, the most wonderful part of a day in my life is when I've been busy ministering, whatever it may be, and I go to bed absolutely tired out. Not tired of the work, but tired in the work. That's the most wonderful feeling there is. I know of nothing more wonderful to say, thank you, Lord, for a wonderful day, and then crawl into bed. Always finding rest. Now, that's the missing rest in the life of the believer. And you'll never find rest by reading books or going to seminars or coming to Bible school. There's only one way you can find rest, and that's to learn of Him. He said so. And the only way you can learn of Him is to live with Him. And the Lord is always on the job. So you learn, it's an on-the-job learning. One of the things I've noticed through the years at Cape Henry, especially with Major Thomas and boys who come to help, it's on-the-job learning. They're not given a textbook and learn how you do this and this. They're given a pick and a shovel and say, now, out you go. And you learn as you go. You learn the hard way, but you learn. But some of us, we'd rather stay in the pasture and run around and live it up as we think so and wait for God to rattle a bucket and then come for a handout. Are you living on God's hands out? That's a miserable way to live. It's a most selfish way to live. Just whenever I'm in need, come in crying to God to get me out of it. He will. I know He will because He loves you. But God never planned that you should be a layabout. You were saved to serve. And the only way, if you're interested in service, and we were singing about it, it thank you, Kathy, for singing that. It's knowing, it's, it's a knowing and loving and serving. 
And knowing is living with him. And loving is sticking it out. And serving is the, the end result. And when all that's done, when there's a knowing and the loving and the serving, then, then you find rest to your souls. And if you're afraid of service, you'll never know rest. And your Christian life will continue with turmoil and uncertainty and total dissatisfaction. And you look with envy on other people as the Lord takes them and uses them. Sometimes he puts them in places of high position and the world knows them. Only a few. Many are just a bunch of little nobodies or in the background slogging away just the same. Wherever you go, you'll find in all the conferences, whatever, or churches, names that are known and a lot of young, lot of people, not young, older people as well. Very often older people in conferences slogging away nobodies. Why are they slogging away? Because they're under the yoke. And what have they found? They found rest. And what a wonderful time to stand before the Lord when it's all over. And to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Please notice, it isn't well done, thou good and fruitful servant. It isn't the amount of results you can show. It's the amount of faithfulness you've demonstrated. And not everybody is going to hear those words. I hear that phrase used too often. when, When the Lord says to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, how do you know he will? You read the judgment seat of Christ. Some people are going to lose everything except their salvation. You'll answer. It's a strange thing that you will answer someday for your response to my message this morning. When you stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. That's in heaven. You're okay. You're there. But he wants to know what you've done with the salvation they gave you. Whether you took the yoke or why you didn't. Say, let's come to the most important part of the message. Most of you know it now. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. And we'll have 60 wonderful seconds of absolute quietness. And in these 60 seconds, you could make a decision. Remember, it's come. Well, you've done that. If I'm speaking to somebody and you've never yet come to the cross, that's where you begin. Even as I'm speaking, you could come and repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Savior. But most of us here have done that. We've come. The next word is take. And the Lord may be waiting for you to move under. And then as you stay under, so you learn. And the more you learn, the more rest you have. See, this quality of rest that you want, it's in your own hands to receive it. I will give you rest. He's offering it to you now. But you'll only find it when you bow your stubborn neck and get under the yoke and stay there and learn of Him.